Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. On this week's episode of Babel, I talked to Stephanie Williams, the former acting UN Special Representative of the Secretary General to Libya. Then Natasha Will and I discuss our own experiences with mediation elsewhere in the region. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Since the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi, in 2011, factions have competed to control Libya. In 2015, the UN brokered an accord for a new national unity government. One faction based in the east, led by former Libyan General Khalifa Haftar, challenged the UN-recognized government based in Tripoli in western Libya. Each side had access to oil revenues from wells and ports in its respective areas. Haftar was able to draw in support from several international actors, including Egypt, Libya's neighbor to the east, and the United Arab Emirates. In April 2019, Haftar attempted to consolidate control over the entire country with a military advance on the Tripoli-based government. Turkey intervened to support the Tripoli-based government, and Haftar suffered a string of military defeats. The UN held a conference in Berlin in January 2020, which brought together the international stakeholders but failed to produce a ceasefire. Following a year of mediation led by our guest, Stephanie Williams, a breakthrough was achieved when Libyan delegates attending talks in Geneva nominated a new unified interim government in February 2021. Stephanie Williams served as the acting special representative of the UN Secretary General and the head of the UN support mission in Libya from March 2020 until February 2021. Stephanie, welcome to Babel. Thanks, John. It's really wonderful to join you here today. Great to be with you. The Libyan civil war has been going on for almost a decade now. Why has it lasted for so long? Well, after the Gaddafi regime was overthrown, Libya really atomized. I mean, we talk about divisions, but it was much more than divisions. The society fragmented at almost a molecular, an atomic level. And I believe that there is now a chance for them to seriously come forward and at least, you know, move towards elections, you know, which will hopefully usher in a period of institutional stability, unification. And really, the other dynamic of the last 10 years has been this erosion of sovereignty. So a simple restoration of some measure of sovereignty in the country. Now, by my count, you were the sixth UN official leading negotiations in Libya, trying to bring Libyans back together. I know a bunch of the predecessors too, and you were more successful than most. What lessons did you learn from the previous five? So look, I was brought in initially as the deputy under uh, Hassan Salama, who was a great source of inspiration and a personal mentor to me. And what I essentially worked on and implemented in the year between the time that he left, March 2020, and then his permanent replacement came in on February you know, 8th of this year, 
was implementing the plan that we worked on together following Haftar's assault on Tripoli, where we essentially had to, you know, rewrite the entire mediation strategy, given the international dynamics, given the fact that the Security Council had effectively ceased to exist. There's a story in The Guardian about your efforts, and it said that in January, you have deliberately been taking risks to force the pace on political, economic, and military reform. What risks did you try to force as you were getting closer to having an agreement? So look, a lot of this was driven by the Libyans themselves. In addition to, there was calm on the ground uh, after last June, and we were able to start track two talks on the political process and then bring the military leaders together. But the economic situation in Libya and the humanitarian situation was deteriorating. So while, you know, the conflict had stopped, the country had been plunged into the pandemic and delivery of services, which were horrible in quote unquote Libya normal times, really were even worse during this period. The electricity grid was close and is still close to collapse. This was due to systematic misgovernance and uh, corruption. And they took to the streets. So that was a signal that the patience of the public was wearing thin. We had that. We had the military leaders coming together in October, which, you know, they made it very clear to me that they wanted to see a united executive and they wanted to see national elections. The United Executive and bringing the security institutions would help also solidify the ceasefire. And there was this fear that the country was slipping out of their control because of the persistent and increasing foreign intervention. So they felt that this was a moment and that we used that. And again, it was their words. It was the words of the Libyan military leaders that we use, frankly, to put pressure on the political class, who are always the most difficult in these, in any of these mediations, because they are the most reluctant to leave their seats. So there was a military track and a political track and economic track. And in many ways, it was the military track, the so-called five plus five group, that forged the way toward the compromise that was reached a little while ago. Were you surprised? that the military track turned out to be the one that really got traction? Or was that always the expectation when you set this up? No, in fact, so the track that started with the most ease was the economic track. So the approach that Hassan and I took was that, you know, you cannot start to tackle the political and military elements of the conflict until you really start to address the underlying economic drivers it is a struggle over for authority and control of resources with a political class and a political culture that views, you know, access to the trough, access to the budget as private ghanima or, you know, the spoils. So unless you start to unpackage the economic drivers of the conflict, it becomes very hard then you 
So we started with the economic track, and then we picked up the military to the first joint military commission meetings that took place in Geneva, really almost essentially right after Geneva. The delegations refused to meet face-to-face in Geneva. They asked for parallel talks, which is what we did, two physical rounds, one in January, one in February. During this time, Tripoli was still being assaulted. And so you would sit at the table and Tripoli Harbor was bombed uh, one day. And it's hard to have talks when bombs are falling. So that was a very fraught period. Then Hassan left and that coincided with the onset of the pandemic. And so we had to stop all physical meetings. We moved online. We recognized that we needed to reconstitute, sort of rebuild the political track. We also moved to the entire international process, the Berlin process, online with the internationals. Because for every Libyan, intra-Libyan, Libyan-owned track, there is a complementary international working group that plugs into that track. What's built in here is a continuing international engagement which is very important directly with the Libyan tracks. And that, by the way, really helped on the economic track. Then, basically, because of the international and foreign interference in the country, when Haftar had his sponsors and their intensive engagement on his behalf drove the UN-recognized government to seek the assistance of the Turks. The Turks came in big time over the spring. The government of national accord with the assistance of Turkey was able to push Haftar out of western Libya to this stalemate that the current line of demarcation between Sirt and Jufra in central Libya. Fighting stopped. There's a calm on the ground that Alhamdulillah exists till today. And that enabled us to see if there was still some fluidity, particularly in the military and the political tracks. And the military, the two sides of the Joint Military Commission, the so-called 5 plus 5, asked the mission in September And here also, the Egyptians were helpful because they organized a sort of pre-meeting, a warm-up session to the Joint Military Commission. So they did a meeting at the end of September, and then we convened the 5 plus 5 in Geneva in October. And these guys came to Geneva wanting to meet face-to-face and ready for a deal. And I think this distinguishes this from other mediations. Documents drafted by the Libyans discussed by the Libyans, adopted by the Libyans, a UN-facilitated process. What was the balance between how much you were talking to Libyans and Libyan representatives versus working on the outside sponsors and the diplomacy of all the patrons of various proxy forces in this battle? It's such a good question. I would say up until April 4, 2019, you know, we lived and worked primarily in Libya, And I did a lot of travel all over the country. We just really devoted ourselves to the government of National Accord, particularly after the ceasefire in the fall of 2018 to the implementation of the economic reforms, addressing security sector reform, trying to start on DDR. So a lot of attention there, but then also building the National Conference for April 14th, 2019, that was aborted by, you know, Haftar's attack on the Capitol. 
at that point, because of the rupture in the international community of what had been a fragile, I would say, consensus on the Libyan file and Security Council, we then had to really start devoting our time more to the international umbrella. And so Vassan went to Berlin to pitch this to the chancellor, who, of course, agreed to have Germany sponsor this process. And then we started a series of meetings at the senior officials level to build towards the conference that took place on January 19th, 2020. So there was a shift because before tackling the Libyan tracks, we needed at least to be able to bring the major players, so the P5, the permanent members of the Security Council, plus those particularly regional countries directly interfering in the conflict, namely UAE, Egypt, and Turkey, Germany as the sponsor Italy, of course, is a country that has longstanding a relationship with Libya and then the regional organizations. So we really worked on that. We produced the conference on January 19th, 2020, with a whole set of you know, commitments, which, of course, some of the players immediately violated or ignored. And then we had the Security Council resolution and then the pivot to the Libyan tracks. I want to ask you about the mediation piece. You spent decades as a U.S. diplomat in the Middle East. I think I first met you probably a couple decades ago when you were in Abu Dhabi. You were the deputy chief of mission in Iraq. You were the deputy chief of mission in Jordan, where I also saw you. You were the deputy chief of mission and the chargé d'affaires in Bahrain during the Arab Spring. You have had tremendous experience as a U.S. diplomat. And now you were put into a position as a UN mediator. How is that job different from what you've been doing for decades? And what things are more or less continuations? In the UN, we were doing on-the-spot mediations that I would never have been able to do as a U.S. diplomat because I probably just wouldn't have been in the room with some of these characters. So as an example, in late August, early September 2018, there was an attack on Tripoli by some Mizrathan groups and then Tarhuna, this infamous Kanayat, you know, murderous uh, militia, attacked Tripoli and of course, you know, the Tripoli armed groups, you know, defended the city. And we literally organized ceasefire meetings in one of the neighboring cities, the large city of Zawiya. And we had like really all of these guys. I mean, the gunslingers, you know, are at the table and we're talking to all of them and we broker a ceasefire agreement, which all except one of the parties to the conflict signs. We achieved the ceasefire. And then what I took from my U.S. government career, and I really learned this in Jordan and Iraq, was how to operationalize these things. So how to use, in this case, the ceasefire agreement to leverage economic reform. So we, we recognizing, again, that the economic drivers of the conflict needed to be addressed, we wrote into the ceasefire agreement in Zawiya that the government of National Accord and the Central Bank needed to implement economic reforms. And that's what started the process for the exchange rate reform. I took from my experience in Jordan and Iraq of really how to think outside the box in terms of operationalizing agreements, really to ease the humanitarian conditions for the population. 
and applied that in the UN. There are domestic conflicts throughout the Middle East. We have a 10-year civil war in Syria. We have a not quite 10-year civil war going on in Yemen. Arguably, there's an ongoing civil war in Iraq where you served as DCM. What did you learn from this Libya experience, from your experience as a UN mediator, that you think should inform the U.S. approach to the other conflicts? Understanding every conflict is different. What insights did you gain from bringing this group of Libyans to a different place that you think could be applied to other conflicts in the region? I think local ownership of the process is key. So I had observed, particularly in Iraq, that the leaders are, are somehow identified by external parties. And I think that's inherently fraught. There has to be some national, local ownership of the process for it to have any hopes of moving the country forward. In Libya, one of the things that I decided that we needed to do, recognizing that the political dialogue was essentially a 75 people who were not elected by anybody to make some pretty serious decisions about the country. So how do you sort of bake in some legitimacy to this process for the 6 million other Libyans who all think that they should be at the table, right? So you start by, you know, this code of conduct, the pledge of recusal, so that that's a form that is not seen to be a form for self-dealing. And then you shine the light on it which is what we started to do in Tunis, and we did it more so in Geneva. The other thing is, and this is how mediating in the time of a pandemic, where you can't have physical meetings. And in this, again, ironically, I think this forced us actually to be more inclusive in that we ran subtracts for the political process. There was a women's subtract, a youth subtract, and a municipalities subtract. So we had meetings with all of these subtracts. They had rapporteurs who reported into the group of 75 with their recommendations on the way forward. But then we also had these, you know, large digital dialogues, five digital dialogues between sort of the end of October, early November through January 31st with each digital dialogue having over 1,000 Libyans online, most of them young Libyans, by the way, because they have most facility with digital communications, digital technology, and we fed all of this into the dialogue to put pressure, and particularly to put pressure on the political forces. Because in the dialogue, you had civil society, you had tribal constituencies, you had the social components. So it wasn't, you know, strictly the guys in the suits or whatever. It was a mix of personalities, but you still needed <laughs> to inject some popular pressure on the dialogue itself. And so we did that through the digital dialogues where we also ran spot polls through and through these digital dialogues. So that's where we could say, okay, we've just done a poll of a thousand Libyans. Guess what? 77% of them want national elections on time, December 24th. Political class, you need to produce the framework for those elections. A percentage not much lower, I would say like 69%, as I recall, and one of the spot polls wants unified institution, unified executive sovereign institutions prior to elections in order basically to improve services at the local level in Libya. 
So that's what we focused on, uh, and that's what I think distinguished this particular mediation at this time and during the pandemic. And just speaking about Iraq, which is not in civil war, but certainly has a number of internal tensions, do you, do you think this transparency approach holds promise? I think it does. Deals cooked up in smoke-filled or shisha-filled rooms, to me, lack legitimacy. And it also, again, you know, for me, the goal in Libya has to be national elections because of the inherent depravity, frankly, of the political class and the fact that this political class has had 10 years. And it is time for a new generation of Libyans. And I hope that this will include many women to put themselves forward for national office. And the only way to do that is to shine the light on the political class and to make sure that you are lifting the voices of the overwhelming majority of Libyans who want these elections on time, who know that these elections can be produced if the political class is put under pressure. They have to be put under pressure by the international community as well. These guys just can't be allowed to, you know, continue to prevaricate and delay. So there are a number of voices in the Middle East that say that the problem when you get rid of an authoritarian government is the people left to their own devices will slide toward extremism. They will open the door toward authoritarian or totalitarian movements. You're feeling, having worked in Iraq, having been on the ground, working mediation in Libya is the answer to chaos is not authoritarianism. The answer to chaos is greater democracy. Absolutely. And this I know from Libya, because look, even in, during the height of the conflict, the attack on Tripoli, municipal council elections continued to be held, particularly in Western and, and Southern Libya. And Okay, you know, participation rates could be better, and it's definitely challenging to conduct elections during a period of conflict and a pandemic, <laughs> so a double whammy, but people still turned out, and they turned out to run as candidates, and they turned out to vote. And to me, that's just another indication that the green shoots of democracy are definitely there in Libya, and again, all of the national polling supports the view that Libyans want, you know, national elections. They want to be able to renew the democratic legitimacy of their institutions. And frankly, this is good for the international community as well, because it's only the democratically elected sovereign government is going to be able to forge the strategic relationships including with all of the countries, by the way, that are interfering in Libya, that will help, again, to build stability and make Libya much less of a threat to its immediate neighbors and to regional peace and security. Stephanie Williams, thank you for joining us. Thank you, John. It's been great. Next up, Natasha, Will, and I discuss our own experiences of mediation elsewhere in the Middle East. So, John and Natasha, Stephanie Williams discussed her efforts to increase inclusion in the process of the negotiations and the dialogue in Libya. And she mentioned various ways of doing that by 
sort of taking advantage of the digital space by having snap polls, efforts to increase transparency and to include more local ownership as well in the process. And I wonder from your experiences, how much you think those kinds of tactics and or techniques of improving dialogues could be worthwhile elsewhere in the region in other conflicts. Natasha, I know that before you came to CSIS, you were involved in mediation in relation to Syria. Would that work there? I think this is an exciting new space for a lot of mediators and in sort of enlarging the circle of inclusion when it comes to these discussions, which typically happened, like she said, in sort of smoke-filled rooms amongst sort of top diplomats. I think that the issue, though, is that what is real inclusion? What does that look like? Because I've seen on the ground a lot of relaying efforts of track one efforts or even track two efforts to various activists on the ground and local governance actors, especially in Syria. But there's not much of a feedback loop. So their experiences and impressions don't necessarily feed back then to the track two and the track one efforts. So I think that's one particular challenge. The other one, which is even more problematic, is how do you get these members of civil society, these people on the ground, included into these conversations, which may put them in danger, frankly. For example, the self-administration in Northeast Syria and people from Deir Azor and Raqqa was that, frankly, people on the ground in those areas were scared to go to such dialogues because then they would have to go back home and they could face arrest depending on what they said during those forums. So I think that there's a lot of sort of things to tease out, but clearly greater inclusion, genuine inclusion is a good thing. She was able to use the postmodern sentiment against a modern political structure, that she was the intermediary in a way that revolutionaries in Egypt in 2011 weren't able to be. I think that gets at an interesting point as well, which is deciding people who are involved in dialogues, deciding who they're representing. And I think often they might be put in sort of categories to represent a certain body of people. But that process of putting them in categories may actually skew the outcome or at least influence the outcome. One experience I have of this is research I was doing for the office of Stefan de Mastora, who was the previous special envoy to Syria. They were in early stages of talking about a, a national Syrian dialogue and were asking for ideas of who should be included in that and trying to think of every category of Syrians and what categories do you include. And if you include religious groups or sectarian groups, do you end up playing into the sectarianization of the conflict? So I think there's some power in deciding who gets to be in these discussions and who are they representing. Well, that certainly what happened in Iraq after Saddam Hussein fell, is they decided we're going to have a cabinet that's going to be representative. And the way it was representative was very much along sectarian lines. And the U.S. ended up facilitating the sectarianization of Iraq, in many cases, imposed more sectarianism in the country than existed under Saddam, who imposed his own version of sectarianism to help rule. The other you know, example of this that I think has to be out in our minds is Yemen had a big national dialogue process, which intended to bring all of these groups in. The national dialogue failed, and Yemen has been in civil war ever since. So there's a way in which merely having the dialogue, merely bringing the groups in, doesn't get you over the hurdle. And in some cases, it's the Houthis feeling they were marginalized by that dialogue 
that helped spur the Houthi movement that has led the country into the chaos it's in now. Yeah, I mean, I would just add one more point there. She did mention the importance of local buy-in and having a Libyan-led process, which is clearly important, I think, in all of these civil wars, all these conflicts. But the thing is, there are these spoilers, these international spoilers, like in the case of Libya, you have Russia, you have the UAE, you have Turkey. And you really need to also make sure that they don't spoil a great local process In the case of Libya, I mean, you saw Stephanie Williams demand for mercenaries and foreign forces to leave Libya. And as of yet, it seems like several deadlines have passed. So I think that where local buy-in is very important and having a national-led process is very important, there also needs to be some acknowledgement of reality. In the case of Syria, you have tens of thousands of foreign forces in the country. In the case of Libya, it's probably much less so, but you do have to deal with that reality. So it'll be interesting to see how Libya plays out when you continue to have this sort of foreign influence on the ground. Natasha, at the start, you mentioned track two dialogue as well. And I wanted to ask both of you a bit about your experiences of track two dialogues that you've been involved in and how they contribute. Why do they even exist in the first place? So I've done a number with countries with whom we don't have dialogue. So I was involved in a U.S.-Libya track two dialogue when we didn't have a dialogue with Libya. I was involved in a Syria track two dialogue. We didn't have a dialogue with the Syrians. And I was involved in a U.S.-Iran track two dialogue. We didn't have an official dialogue with the Iranians. I think there's something a little strange about all these track two dialogues in that the Americans tend to represent a range of views. And people on the other side seem to be playing roles that they have worked out in advance. They know what they're trying to get out of the dialogue. The Americans often come and have this desire to educate people. That being said, I think educating people about the realities of American politics, educating people about the complexities, helping people appreciate that the American government isn't the president makes a decision and then everything flows from that, but that there's a process that leads up to it and a process that comes from it, I think is helpful because Everybody tends to impose their model on the other system. And people tend to think the American system works in ways the American system doesn't work. Educating them on that, I think, is helpful. But I think we also have to have some humility that the American system is a pretty open book. Everybody can read the New York Times and the Washington Post, and they do. A lot of these societies are not open books. And there's a way in which you can get lulled and say, oh, I understand what's happening because I I just spoke to Iranians or Syrians or Libyans or others. And you're getting a narrow perspective, generally of people very close to the government, often chosen by the government, and they represent what the government wants you to know. So Natasha, you've been involved in these dialogues and Stephanie Williams seemed to feel that they really held the prospect of resolving issues which had otherwise reduced these countries to chaos. You've been in a lot of tough places. Are you confident that these dialogues can really address the chaos? Or is it a 50-50 proposition? Or do they have to be embedded with something else? I think that we need to be optimistic, because for a lot of these conflicts, it has to be a political process. And it just can't be a military solution. And that's for the civilians on the ground more than anyone else. That said, I think that there are a lot of limitations to these dialogues when there isn't a really high level commitment on the part of mediators and on the part of the stakeholders. 
In the case of, for example, the Constitutional Committee for Syria, you have a situation where one side has essentially said that they've won. Most of the world has said that they've won. And in the words of one person I spoke with, the UN, you have the envoy basically still trying to decide if the table that they're all going to sit at will be round or square. So, I mean, you have really severe limitations when you have one side that essentially believes that they won and nobody is going to tell them otherwise. At the lower level, when you have these sort of backdoor channel conversations that go on for years and years and years, I get more reluctant to say that you're going to have any kind of good outcomes from it. I think people get better at talking to each other, but not so good at acting upon it. And another high-level official from the UN told me that it's his Hitler likes dogs theory, where you're sitting amongst potentially war criminals, but Hitler liked German shepherds, right? And so do I. And so you sit around having coffee and tea for hours and hours and hours, you get better at that dialogue. But whether or not that dialogue leads to a sustainable peace is a whole different matter. And I think that that has always been a challenge for any of these peace-building efforts, whether they're at the track one level or at the track two level. But certainly the transparency that Stephanie Williams was able to bring to the Libyan process was really commendable. And I think that wider inclusion hopefully means that it will also be more sustainable as well. Well, John and Natasha, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Will. And come back next week to hear a Meze episode on fishermen in Yemen. Thanks for listening to Babel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.